God is trying to emphasize that life matters. Life matters right here. Don't separate yourself from life and say, oh, my hope is all in the afterlife. Like, no, that's what the Egyptians did. And it's wrong. It's not correct. Welcome to Acton Line, a podcast from the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. What are contemporary attitudes toward the market in the United States and the larger Jewish world? What is the historical contribution of the Jewish community to economic dynamism? And how does this relate to anti-Jewish attitudes and prejudice? In this episode, Rabbi Mitchell Rockland sits down with the Acton Institute's Dan Huger for a wide-ranging conversation on Judaism and markets. Rabbi Rockland serves as the president of the Jewish Coalition for Religious Liberty and is also a resident research fellow at the Tikva Fund. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash podcast. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act in Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Welcome. My name is Dan Huger, Librarian and Research Associate with the Acton Institute. Today I'm joined by Rabbi Mitch Rockland. Uh, Rabbi Rockland serves as the president for the Jewish Coalition for Religious Liberty and is also a resident research fellow at the Tikva Fund. He received his Ph.D. in history from the City University of New York Graduate Center, held a postdoctoral fellowships at Princeton University and Yeshiva University, and taught at both the City University of New York and Princeton. He is also a chaplain in the Army National Guard with the rank of major. Rabbi Rockland is a member of the Rabbinical Council of America's Executive Committee and Military Chaplaincy Committee. Prior to his current work, he served as a congregational rabbi in Connecticut. His writings have appeared in a number of publications, including the Los Angeles Times, National Review Online, The Daily Wire, Forward, Public Discourse, and Mosaic. Rabbi Rockland, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much for having me. Now, today we're going to be talking about Judaism and markets, but I want to begin by talking about religion in general. Um, much of the time when we talk about markets, we think markets are the province of economists or people in business, investors, these sorts of things. What does a religious perspective bring to enrich our appreciation and understanding of markets? I think that, um, one of the biggest problems that we have is uh, an understanding of religion uh, as divorced from uh, considerations uh, involving anything material. Uh, and this is an old problem that goes back to, to the era of Gnosticism and Neoplatonists and just about everyone who wanted to separate um, what, uh, you know, what we commonly today often call uh, somewhat anachronistically, the spiritual and the physical. And you hear a lot of religious talk about that today um, among both uh, among Jews, Christians, and Muslims for that matter. Oh, separate the spiritual from the physical or somehow make the physical uh, spiritual as opposed to seeing uh, human life as embodied, seeing human existence as uh, as something good and something 
uh, creative and something that's in a partnership with God. Because really, we only get to the dynamic notion of free markets as an intrinsically good thing and as an incredibly uh, productive and um, and and, benef- and beneficial activity in and of itself through really a, I, I think the, a, a Judeo-Christian tradition that sees human beings as living in a covenant with God, in a relationship with God, which demands, demands really, um, that we understand human beings as responsible, uh, not only for ourselves, but even for the manifestation of God's divinity uh, here in this, in, in, this, in this created world. Because, uh, say, the Greeks on their own who developed the disciplines of the West, they develop all of the disciplines of the West, including economics, they have the realization that man should search for himself, that man should discover who he is. He should take responsibility for his own cultures. You know, Diogenes, the cynic, used to go around with a light uh, looking for man in the light of day, and that light was a light of reason. Um, but the Greeks can only get so far on their own uh, with their own pagan religion. Um, they need covenantal religion, which comes from Judaism and develops, of course, in both Judaism and, and Christianity and also in, in Islam. Uh, they, need to, uh, they need to have the view that God is searching for man. God is actually looking for us. So that, cr- that provides an imperative for us to search for ourselves. We are beings who are being searched for. In other words, human existence is intrinsically important. And our wealth and our our ability to live well is not just something that we could do or should do or perhaps ought to do. It's actually vitally necessary. God wants us to do it. So that's a tremendous source of inspiration, which brings the Greco-Roman tradition together with the Geo-Christian tradition, brings reason together with revelation, and it provides an impetus uh, for, for the kind of creativity that would drive markets forward and that, that get people to think about economic growth as an intrinsically good thing and a valuable thing and something that we have a duty to promote uh, for the well-being of all of God's people. So religion brings us back to the human person at the center of economics, and it brings us to those, uh, it escapes me now who this is, uh, I've, I've heard Peter Betke reference this before, he talks about, you know, that the center of this is, you know, humanity's alluring hopes and haunting fears. And that, you know, Lord Acton used to say, you know, there, there are two principles that rule the world, religion and economics, what man strive for in this world, in the case of economics, and the next, um, in the case of religion. Now, Judaism has a very unique contribution. The first it is, is the, the, the eldest of the Abrahamic faiths, and so much of what gets worked out in different ways in theology and Christianity and in Islam has its basis in this Jewish tradition. Where does the Jewish tradition on reflection on the markets begin? Sure. So I think that in the realm of economics, Judaism is particularly important, not only for Jews to understand economics, but it's actually vitally important for for Christians and Muslims as well, because what Judaism never really lost sight of um, and of course, there's always theological debates, but by and large, Judaism never really lost sight of um, the imminent uh, the imminent presence of God right here in every moment of existence, um, and and therefore the importance of human activity uh, in producing creative things, in in being creative 
with what is often dismissed as the material. Um, Jews never really had a problem with that. Jews were at the vanguard of the development of markets uh, in medieval Europe, for instance, uh, both in Northern Europe, where Ashkenazic Jews lived, and also in Southern Europe, where Sephardic Jews lived. Um, and and this, this occurred both under Islam and under Christianity. Um, and Jews didn't really have a problem with um, capital and with the development of economics for a simple reason. They didn't really see a divide between God all the way out in heaven and, and otherworldly considerations versus uh, what are often dismissed as worldly considerations. Jews wanted to uh, appreciate God's presence right here in every single moment, which Christians came to understand as well. Augustine, a Christian, of course, was the first to philosophically explicate uh, the notion that God and eternity are not found somewhere far, far away, far, far off in the heavens, but as Augustine put it, God can be found in the eternal sublimity of every moment. So every moment of human existence is uh, lived close to God. This is a covenantal outlook. Judaism creates this covenantal outlook, uh, and it comes from revelation, of course, in the Bible, and it's explicated in many, many Jewish poetic sources. Um, But Christian philosophical formulations of this poetic revealed notion are going to be very, very important for um, giving people an understanding that the activities that we do in what seems to just appear to be this sort of created world, um, it's not just – they're not just important for some afterlife. They're important right now. They're just intrinsically um, good and important. And so Judaism um, I think practically shows us that you don't need to be uncomfortable uh, living in the living life in in, in in an embodied way in the real world. And it also provides a philosophical – I should say a theological foundation um, to allow for a Christian philosophical understanding that actually – this is where the action is. The action is right here. This is what God wants us to focus on. He wants us to be creative. He wants us to be fruitful, to multiply, to conquer the earth and subdue it, as Genesis describes, uh, and to be fruitful in the full sense of the word. Uh, fruitful in, in the Hebrew is peru, like, like to be fruitful. It doesn't just mean like multiply like fruits. It means to, 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 to be creative, to, to create wonderful things. That's an excellent summation of this tradition. When we think about, and this here we talk uh, explicitly about creation, providence, um, you know, these are, these, are the, these are the Christian sort of categories. We, I mean, not that they don't exist, but the providence language might be more unique. Um, in God, creating the world, sustaining the world, making provision for human welfare, uh, providing instruction to humans into how to live fruitful lives, where does the covenants themselves, when we think of typically like the Noahic covenant, um, the covenant with Abraham, um, the covenant on Mount Sinai, how do those inform are thinking about markets or the Jewish tradition of reflection on markets. Yeah, in a way that I think is very important, especially in light of secular modern critiques of Christianity um, in, in, in this realm, because I think that Ju- I think Judaism, a return to Christianity's Jewish roots can provide us with an antidote to the problem of materialistic secularism uh, and, and, sec- and, and, and material determinism in particular. The, the religious notion of covenant, which is, by the way, the the it is at the very beginning 
of Judaism and Christianity. Um, and, and this has been demonstrated by many scholars, and, and you can see it in the Bible itself pretty clearly with a straightforward reading. Um, the notion of covenant is the central uh, understanding that allows for Judaism and, and Christianity, which follows. It's always pointing human beings to their responsibility their responsibility for themselves and their responsibility for God's project. In other words, it's God is not just saying, "Okay, I have this program, and this is how it's gonna, you know, this is how it's gonna be realized." And I could have a bunch of robots do it, but I created free people, and hopefully they'll do what the robots could have done. No, 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 no. It's a dynamic relationship in which God is in in, in a back and forth and a give and take with human beings. Um, God wrestles with human beings throughout the Bible. Uh, I'm thinking of Abraham's conversation about Sodom. Yes. And the negotiation there. Yeah, Abraham negotiates with God about Sodom, and God wants him to negotiate. God God says before the negotiation, God says, am I going to withhold from Abraham what I'm doing? No, I want Abraham to pursue righteousness and justice, and so I'm going to reveal what I'm doing to Abraham. I'm going to let him know, and then I'm going to take his feedback. Right. And it's not just, oh, thanks for your feedback. Have a nice day. No, it's Abraham says, well, come on, come on. Like, can't we save the cities if there's 50 people? What about 40, 30, 20? Right. And and uh, that tradition continues. So Jacob wrestles with God in the book of Genesis. And in fact, his name is changed to Israel. Uh, and the Hebrew word for Israel means to struggle with God, to wrestle with with God. Um, in Moses struggles and wrestles with God and saves the the Israelites. God wants to destroy the people. And Moses says, no, no, I won't allow you to do that. If you do that, you have to erase me too, right? And this would be seen as sacrilegious by pagans. And in fact, if you read someone like Tacitus, uh, you know, Roman historian, uh, he didn't know very much about the Jews, but what he knew about them, uh, he says that he can't figure out what they worship. He says they either worship one of two things. He says they either worship no gods or they worship themselves, Right? They only have faith in themselves. But it actually makes a lot of sense when you think about it. Like, what does a covenant look like from a pagan point of view? It looks terribly sacrilegious. It looks like what you're saying is, well, there's only one God, and he cares only about people, right? So it looked selfish, right? The gods didn't have their own their own affairs. And it also meant that human beings had responsibility for God's divinity being manifest, which which to a pagan looked incredibly incredibly outrageous. It looks sacrilegious. How can you say people are responsible for God's divinity being manifest? It, it must be that the Jews believe in themselves. They don't really believe in God. No, we, we do believe in God, but we believe that God is in a partnership with us. And that's at the root of Judaism and Christianity. The reason this is so important for economics is because our creative capacity is the central purpose of creation itself. In other words, we have to we have to get beyond an older r- religious understanding which can sometimes lead people into complacency and passivity. And this is where I think we need to be honest and recognize that modernity had a legitimate critique uh, of of medieval thought. Um, it, that's not to say that modernity didn't caric- caricature the Middle Ages incorrectly, but at its core, at its core, the moderns were saying something very, very simple. Medievals became too complacent. They became too reliant on God's sovereignty alone, and we need to recover 
human agency. We need to recover an emphasis on human agency. And, and, and that's why it's hard to distinguish between, say, many Christian humanists and many secular moderns, because they're essentially making the same argument. Um, and, and the church was struggling with this when it had to deal with Christian humanism. Do we excommunicate people like Meister Eckhart and Pico della Mirandola, or do we, do we say that they're, they're Christians? Um, and so the seculars say, eh, you know what, we're just secular. We don't, we don't need the church, right? Now, that, of course, is a tremendous mistake, because without God, we, of course, lose our humanity, and history has shown us that pretty clearly. Um, but we need our humanity. We can't just say, oh, God will, God will provide, God will provide. You know, like there, there's the old joke that uh, there's a guy who's drowning in, 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 in the ocean and a helicopter comes to save him and he waves it off, says, I'm waiting for God. And a boat comes and waves it off, says, I'm waiting for God. And eventually he drowns and goes up to heaven and complains to God, why didn't God save him? And God says, you idiot, I sent you, you know, the helicopter <laughs> and the boat. Um, now, it's, there's, there's always this temptation it, whenever we're we're religious, um, and it's a temptation that I think modernity was critiquing, but I think we don't have to be secular in order to understand that that critique is valid and that that critique can be responded to. And I think that the Jewish tradition provides a very strong model of understanding the hu- human agency as absolutely essential to uh, to God's manifestation in this world. This is this is this is really fascinating. There's an essay by Paul Hain, the, the late economist, um, who was himself uh, seminary trained before he, he left the seminary and uh, pursued economics. Where he taught, and the essay is, uh, "Are economists basically immoral?" And there's a point at which he says, "As long as churches need pews or kneelers or hymn books or all of the stuff of worship itself." needs to come from somewhere and someone needs to do it and that needs to be coordinated in some way. And thus the economy is essential in everyone's business, um, including religious people. Now you've outlined sort of a, a, a theological understanding of the basis for this. How is the Jewish community historically worked this out in its own history. You know, they're often leaders in innovation. They often have been merchants, traders, have facilitated exchange to the benefit not only of their own communities, but all of their neighbors in the wider world providing services. Could you unpack a little bit of that history for us? Yeah, absolutely. So I I think it's important for Jews and Christians, but especially Christians because of the the nature of the Christian Bible, to to remember that the Old Testament comes before the New Testament. If you read the Old Testament, there's there's very, very little emphasis, uh, if any— uh, on an afterlife, and that's by design. Uh, the Old Testament could have focused on an afterlife very easily. Uh, for instance, Egyptian society was obsessed with the afterlife. Um, so the Old Testament intentionally minimizes uh, the afterlife. It, it, there are a few references to, to afterlife here and there, but they're very fleeting, they, they, and they don't go into any sort of detail. There, you do not get the impression from the Old Testament that the reason you live life is for an afterlife. And, and the emphasis, I think, is pretty straightforward. It's pretty clear. 
God is trying to emphasize that you have to live life matters. Life matters right here. Don't separate yourself from life and say, oh, my hope is all in the afterlife. Like, no, that's what the Egyptians did. And it's wrong. It's not correct. So whenever the Bible promises rewards in the Old Testament, it promises things like grain, water, uh, children, long life. They're all world, what we call worldly rewards. But the Bible says these are important things because, number one, as you mentioned, you can't live a religious life without these things. And number two, they're just good. They're just good to have. That If you're not abusing them and you're using them well, then they are intrinsic goods. Now, Jews throughout their history have indeed focused on um, on, on productive creativity in in the in realms like you mentioned, commerce, trade, um, the the provision of of medical services, the provision of of charitable services to uplift the poor. In the same way, that, in the same way that, that that Christians have, but I think that Jews have done it in a way that is less apologetic than Christians. I think that in the Christian tradition, you have more. Uh, you you'll have the, the the response often, well, is this really what we should be focused on, right? Or, or, or maybe we should we should live a more acidic life, right? We should we should live. We don't need all these material things. You don't really find it in Judaism. It's fascinating if you open up a Jewish encyclopedia of say uh, rabbinic sources um, from the classical uh, era and, and the early medieval era, and you look up an entry like wealth and poverty, for example, it'll have it'll reference all of the sources uh, in rabbinic literature that talks about wealth and. And 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 the products of wealth, um, and, and I, you can read through them. I've I've read through all of them myself, and you'll find a tiny, tiny, tiny handful that are that are ascetic and negative towards wealth, and the vast, vast, vast majority. It's not even close. It's almost every single reference is positive, and that's very much the Jewish spirit. Uh, it's it's one that that is promoting. Um, it's, it's promoting uh, the goodness of this world um, in commerce, um, in, the, in the development of wealth, in investment, and in the improvement of people's lives. And that's very much been the Jewish tradition. What you have in modernity is a very difficult problem, and you see it among the Jewish community in a way that uh, sort of predicts what would happen with, with Christian communities, and that is secularism offers this, this sort of perceived way out of religion. And people really create a dichotomy between religion and and secular life where they feel like they've got to choose between them. And so many of the most productive Jewish minds just become secular, right, with Spinoza and and afterwards. Um, And this is a very human problem. This is not a a Jewish problem per se. It's just that um, in, in many respects, Jews, just like they were at the vanguard of religion, are also at the vanguard of the critique of an older form of, of, of religion, and, and people couldn't really figure things out. So you end up getting people like, say, David Ricardo, a prominent economist who, who, of course, converts to Christianity, but was a rather secular secular person, not a, not a deeply religious person, but who channels his religious passion into the secular. And there's a Jewish theologian of the 20th century, Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook, who commented on this sort of development with, with respect to secular uh, people who care about things and who want to accomplish things. He said, there are some people who think they're atheists, but they're really not atheists. And there are other people who think they're religious, 
but they're really atheists. And his point was that if we want to understand true religion and really get back to the essence of the Judeo-Christian tradition, we have to understand that the Judeo-Christian tradition is a, is a religion of covenantal religion. It requires us to be productive and to produce. If we don't do that, we're almost like atheists, right? Not quite atheists, perhaps, but pagans. God will take care of everything, right? God will take care of everything. Although in this secular era, what we often mean is we sort of do, we don't know, like, right? It, it's just it's almost nothingness. Um, and and the same thing is true with the secularists. They often think they're godless, but actually they're motivated by a godly drive to be, be responsible for something truly and intrinsically important, which means they're actually worshiping God. They just don't even realize it. So I think that our challenge is to recover. Uh, the realization that religion and human creativity and productivity are synergistic. They go together in the Judeo-Christian tradition. As you're remarking on this, I'm reminded of uh, the novel by the late Kaim Potok, The Chosen, which has at this, this is one of the tensions in that novel between one of the boys in the story and his father. Um, and his father is an esteemed rabbi. He is to follow him in this tradition. But he has um, interests in the humanities, in psychology, that um, he fears and his father fears a little might be secular and might not be part of um, living a Jewish life. And uh, I, I'd commend that that novel to all listeners because it's it's a really moving sort of meditation on some of these issues. Are you are you familiar with? Yeah, yeah, it's very yeah. very much so. It's a very well known novel. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's yeah, it's an amazing it's an amazing work. Um, now, part of this difference between Christianity and Judaism and the way that um, you know, you know, some Christian perspectives that are more otherworldly oriented has historically led to some very sad animosity to the Jewish people and anti-Semitism, and a lot of that anti-Semitism is also bound up in anti-market attitudes. Um, could you unpack some of that sort of tragic legacy? Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I do think that they are intrinsically connected, um, and I think that anti-Semitism is an existential problem of the human condition. I, I think it's it's often or usually not understood that way. It's often understood as a problem stemming from ignorance or from prejudice or bigotry, I, I, and, and therefore I think it's often wrongly simply lumped in with other forms of bigotry. No, I think there's much something much more existential um, about it, which is why uh, it uniquely pops up in areas that don't have any Jews. So there's often anti-Semitism in parts of the world where there are no Jews living whatsoever. Um, and th there's a reason for that. Um, the, the Jew stands for uh, the covenantal notion in a way that, that no one else quite can. Christianity, I think, is clearly um, the, the the closest to Judaism and understanding, and in many respects, there are there are so many shared understandings of Christ, between Christianity and Judaism that I actually think it's important to. We often lose sight of the fact that Christianity is, of course, an outgrowth of Judaism, and it was, and was of course, a Jewish sect for for, for at, at its inception. So, it, it, we we I, I think that's a whole other problem is that 
people often falsely think that Christianity is radically different than Judaism, because in so many ways it's not radically different than Judaism. There, that's not to say that there are there's no radical difference, but I, I think that there's many more similarities than we appreciate. But that said, the Jew has always stood for the humanistic part of the covenant that emphasizes man's responsibility for God's for the manifestation of God's divinity, which means all human beings are essentially living on the abyss. In other words, we live in a dynamic world. We live in a world where the natural state of things is not rest, but motion, right? There's potential in every single moment. That is very scary. It scared people for a long, long time, right? When, when Galileo realizes that the natural state of things is motion and not rest, as Aristotle would put it, that was frightening. That was very, very scary, um, and understandably so. Um, it, it's scary in the realm of economics also, right? If dynamism and entrepreneurship can produce new horizons and new realizations, right? If, if, if we live in a situation in which the, 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 the moonshots and the loonshots of the world are going are gonna to change things and, and we'll live in ways that we can't even possibly predict right now, that's a frightening, that's a frightening prospect because we really don't know what the future will bring. What the book, as the books of, book of Isaiah describes, we don't know what the new heavens and the new earth will bring. Jews have always stood for a vision of that bright future, which mean, which which involves uncertainty and it, and involves mystery in the sense that we don't know where history is going, but we know we're living in history. We're absolutely confident that we're living in history and not nature. Now Hegel would would put it that way, but it's very much deriving from a Jewish understanding. Now, Christians share that understanding to a very great extent, particularly Christian humanism. But Christianity, because of doctrinal considerations, never quite goes as far as Judaism. Christianity is always going to fall back on the Trinity and and the God-man of Jesus as the way in which the covenantal relationship is realized. The Jews are making a claim that's more radical, and 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 that is that. It's every single man, every single woman, every single human being is responsible in the same way that Jesus was responsible for the connection between God and man. Now, that's a very radical claim, and it's going to lead to all sorts of hatred of Jews um, be, for obvious reasons, but not all the reasons are obvious. For, for instance, the hatred of the free market is, as you, I think you can see based on this, this backdrop— the, the hatred of the free market is the same – I want to say it's the same thing, but it's, it's intimately linked with the hatred of what the Jew stands for in covenant. Because w why should I say that I think that things are unsettled and that human beings are responsible for development, right? That's a very scary thing to say. No, no, I, I want everything to, to be more or less the same and to develop in an orderly manner, right? But the spirit – the spirit of the West is, is very different from the spirit of, of the East, right? We don't, we don't um, sink our and dismantle our navies and not go out into the world, right? No, we have a spirit of exploration, a spirit of, of discovery. Um, 
it's it's very unpopular because you know human beings they really <laughs> we really have a problem with uh, freedom uh, and the dyna- the dynamism of freedom because it's it's very very frightening for for obvious reasons. So Jews were at the center of economic development in the 19th century when modern scientific anti-Semitism developed. I say scientific in quotes. I mean, it's not scientific, but the anti-Semites posited that it was scientific. But you know, along with quote unquote scientific racism, which is not not really scientific, but that was the claim. Um, but anti-Semitism develops in tandem with an- with opposition to free markets in places like Vienna, which was both the capital of anti-Semitism and also the capital of free markets in all of Eastern Europe um, in terms of railroad development, banking, so on and so forth. And up to half the middle class population of Vienna was Jewish. Odessa, further east in what's today the Ukraine, before it was the Russian Empire, Odessa also had, I, I forget the exact figure, but I think it was something like a third of Odessa's middle class was, was Jewish, um, it, way out of proportion with the Jewish population, the Russian Empire. And Jews were part and parcel of the commercial uh, development that was going on in Odessa, which was so vitally important to the southern Russian Empire. And um, hatred of the free market. And hatred of economic liberalism, lowercase l, old-fashioned economic liberty, was it? It it was tied at the hip with anti-Semitism, because uh, people were attacked for being "quote unquote" cosmopolitan, "quote unquote" unrooted, right? Too free. There's too much freedom, right? We can't have this. And Jews were seen as the target because fundamentally and existentially, that is what the Jews stands for, this dynamic. And by the way, I'll conclude my answer with this. It, of course, and and now we see it, we say, of course, I don't think it was obvious at the time, but it, of course, led to anti-Christianity. Because if you hate Jews for what they stand for in all of these respects— then of course you're going to come to hate Christianity for what it stands for in all of these respects because Christianity fundamentally stands for the same thing. It may it may see the Trinity as the way in which the covenant is expressed, but you know, more or less you're talking about the same thing. And of course, anti-Semitism leads to totalitarian hatred not only of Judaism, but of Christianity and attempts to exterminate it. One of the things I'm curious about is what you see in the modern world in the Jewish community's relationship to the market. Because we've seen also in the, in the modern world Jewish figures that are critical of the market, even, even, some, even some, some Jewish leaders, um, uh, hostile or at least ambivalent to the market. What do you, what do you think of, of that dialogue as it's unfolding within the Jewish community in, in today? Yeah, I think there's a misnomer. Uh, I, I was once asked by a journalist from the New York Post to try to explain why Jews in America are, are as he put it, you know, radically socialist. And I, I said, well, that's not really actually true. Um, and there's statistical evidence to demonstrate this. And he says, well, what do you mean? There's people like Bernie Sanders. And I said, sure, well, those are the visible people. But that doesn't mean that that's where Jews are by and large in America. Um, the reason you have people like Bernie Sanders and and you know historically you know anarchists and communists and you know, Emma Goldman and all these types of people is for a very simple reason, right? I mentioned it earlier. Jews who abandon their religion and are and are still really religious at heart, right? They're looking for an outlet, so they they get a sec they develop a secular theology or they join a secular theology as a replacement religion. Um, but 
that's not by and large where most American Jews are. A majority of American Jews, there's a lot of data to demonstrate this, are, are pretty clearly moderate, um, certainly on economics. Uh, most Jews are, are actually moderate Democrats in the United States, um, squarely in – clearly in the moderate wing of the Democratic Party, not uh, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. People don't realize this because there are so many vocal Jews who are leaders in the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, but that's not where the voters are and, and we know this actually. There's also a big contingent of Jews and a growing contingent of Jews who are more right of center on economics in, in particular but also on social issues to a great extent, um, particularly groups like Orthodox Jews, uh, Russian Jews uh, and a growing contingent of just ordinary Jews in America who've um, turned away from – from liberalism as it's become more socialistic and have gravitated more to the right. So there's a growing percentage of Jews who are uh, in favor of econ economic liberty in America. But it's also important to realize that America is an unusual situation. Um, America is a place where people feel very comfortable and, and most Jews in America are basically comfortable with the economic freedom that we have. So there's more political flexibility. But in places around the world where that economic freedom is in question, uh, Jews tend to be much more to the right in politics. And in fact, the United States is rather an exception for Jewish communities um, being more in the center left. Um, in Canada, in Europe, uh, and in, in Israel and Australia, uh, Jews are on the political right of the spectrum. Uh, and that's where most Jews in the world live. Uh, majority of Jews no, in the world no longer live in the United States. Um, and, that, and a majority of Jews will soon live in Israel. Um, Israel has be, been economically liberalizing lowercase l, meaning you know, becoming more of a free country for, for decades now. Um, and in fact, if you look at the OECD, um, Israel is one of the most economically free countries in the entire OECD. It has uh, one of the lowest tax burdens um, and it's, it's getting better in the realm of regulations. It has a lot of old legacy regulations that are still around, but those regulations are disappearing. Um, successive governments have been stripping them away. So Israel is already in a very good position and Israel's heading in a better position. And I think that as the recent legacy of socialism as sort of an, uh, an alternative to religion kind of dies away uh, among Jews uh, around the world, you're going to continue to see a growing Jewish appreciation for economic freedom, which is really just recovering the old Jewish legacy of economic freedom, which dominated Jewish communities for thousands of years. Uh, the socialist legacy is a blip in the bigger realm of history. It was a little experiment that began to be tried uh, in the 19th century. And it's an experiment that I think is coming to an end. I think it's a fascinating perspective um, that you bring and remind us that, you know, the Jewish community is a global community. It is increasingly a less American community. What have been the animating forces in sort of Israeli politics and in Jewish life in Israel that might have contributed to that recent trend of deregulation, liberalization, a freer economy in the Jewish state. Yeah, it's it's actually fascinating because free market ideas in Israel are growing on both the right and left of the Israeli political spectrum. It's fascinating to see, and I, I think it really brings out Rabbi Abraham Cook's comment that theologian of the early 20th century, that some people are atheists, um, and, you know, and they don't realize it. They think they're religious. And some people, you know, and vice versa, some people who are, who say they're atheists, you know, they're, they're really religious and, and so on and so forth. In Israel, um, the whole country has been, been growing in its religiosity. 
Um, Israel used to be called a secular country. It is no longer a secular country by any definition. Um, even self-identification, a majority of Israeli Jews consider themselves to be at least traditional, if not outright religious. And, and even that terminology is very misleading because it doesn't really adequately describe the religiosity of Jews. The, the reason is Judaism is such a commandment-heavy religion um, that somebody who, say, isn't meticulous about keeping all 613 commandments would call themselves not religious, right? But yeah. by any, like, American standard, they'd be profoundly religious. Um, so uh, solid supermajorities of Israelis are, are, are religious by American standards. They believe in God. They participate in religious life cycle events. Um, they pray. They uh, or they, they go to synagogue. I'll give you an example: an Israeli who goes to synagogue once a week, but also goes to a soccer game on the Sabbath, would call himself not really religious, because yeah. he's not fully keeping the Sabbath. But like by an American standard, like what that guy is like totally. He goes to synagogue every single week, and he you know eats kosher, and he, he keeps all these different laws, and believes in God, and prays. Of course, he's religious, right? By an American standard. So if you use an American standard, Standard to describe Israelis' religiosity, I would gather, based on the polling data, it's something like 75, 80% of Israel is now is now religious. Uh, Israel's Jewish population is now religious. You have another 20% or so that's Muslim and and Christian uh, and Baha'i and other 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 groups. But um, I would say that among religious Israelis, there's a growing sense that socialism is discredited and that it's not something that, that ought to be followed. And on the left in Israel, on the, le on the left of the political spectrum, as people have become more traditionalist, not necessarily religious, but more appreciative of Jewish tradition, there's a growing realization, you know, we don't really need this socialist ideology. And actually, economic productivity is a good thing, and economic freedom is a good thing. And so I have to give them credit, you know, because, I, look, I myself, more right-wing the political spectrum, but the Israeli left has actually been instrumental in um, getting away from socialism and coming to the realization that, no, you know what, this is not the way to go. And publications like uh, Haaretz, which is the, one of the most left-wing papers in Israel, has a pretty right-wing economic section now. Um, where they promote uh, market literacy and free market education. So I think it's a maturing community that's getting away from what in historical terms, like I'm a historian, I like to think in broader historical terms, but from a historical point of view, the socialist experiment is not very long. It, it lasted from, you know, roughly for roughly a century and a half. Um, and it's coming to a close. I, I shouldn't say it's coming to a close. I, it's more like Churchill. It's not. We're not at the end, but it's. This is. Uh, you know. It's. It, we're. We're sort of at the end of the beginning. Yeah. Um, but the pathway is clear, and I think that it will only continue as the benefits of economic liberalization and freedom have become manifestly clear uh, in Israel, which has now become the center of Jewish life internationally. Rabbi Rockland. Thank you so much for being with us. This has been an enlightening conversation. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. It's nice to be here. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at actin.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Cohn.